Amen. Uh, and I, just to hear y'all, y'all sing, it's, it's beautiful. So follow along with me. Numbers uh, 21, starting in verse 10. And the people of Israel set out and camped in Oboth. And they set out from Oboth and camped at Iobarim in the wilderness that is opposite Moab, towards the sunrise. From there they set out and camped in the valley of Zered. From there they set out and camped on the other side of Arnon, which is the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites, for the Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waheb and Sufa and the valleys of the Arnon and the slope of the valleys that extends to the sea of Ar and leans to the border of Moab. And from there they continued to bear, and that is the well of which the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together so that I may give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing to it, the well that the princes made, that the nobles of the people dug, with the scepter and with their staffs. And from the wilderness they went on to Matanah, and from Matanah to Nahalil, and from Nahalil to Bamoth, and from Bamoth to the valley lying in the region of Moab by the top of Pisgah that looks down on the desert. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jehaz and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to Jabbok as far as to the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. And Israel took all these cities, and Israel settled in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon and in all its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Therefore the ballad singers say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built, let the city of Sihon be established. For fire came out from Heshbon, flame from the city of Sihon. It devoured Ar at Moab, and swallowed the heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab! You are undone, O people of Chemosh. He has made his sons fugitives and his daughters captives to the Amorite king Sihon. So we overthrew them, Heshbon, as far as Dibon, perished, and we laid waste as far as Nopha, fire spread as far as Medeva. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites, and Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up by the way to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them, he and all his people, to battle at Edra. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left, and they possessed his land. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. 
I thank you that we can come and gather as your people to sing your word, to pray your word, to read your word. And, and now as we come to the time of our service, Lord, where we worship you uh, through teaching, let the Holy Spirit open our hearts and minds. And Lord, let the Spirit lead Brad. We thank you for his diligence in preparing the, the message this morning. Uh, but lead and guide us. And we do this all for our love for you, Lord, and we love Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, John. A few weeks ago, um, I was talking to John and, and Kenny. And just so you know, when you become an elder, you learn to pronounce all those things. So uh, <laughs> that's the way it works. Anybody ever watch Lord of the Rings? Anybody just feel like you walked through an episode just then? With all that? You know, We were talking uh, a couple of weeks ago. I said, I think I want to just have people come up and read the scripture of the passage before uh, before the sermon and pray. I just think it would be really great. They didn't know I'd been looking ahead, and I knew I, I didn't want to have to read that one. So um, thank you, John. I really appreciate that. Uh, you know, last week, uh, Pastor Kenny did a great job of pointing us to our need of a Savior. Uh, remembering last week's passage where... The people are walking through the wilderness, of course, and they come to that next murmuring and grumbling stage of the journey. But the fact is that we need to be reminded that this life in Christ is an everyday walking through the wilderness. We need to be reminded that we are walking through a wilderness between redemption and final salvation, between being rescued out of bondage to sin and death until we reach the promised land, until we reach the rest, the, the promised rest that God has given us. It's almost like we're walking through a never-ending valley of the shadow of death. And as we're walking through that wilderness on our way to the promised land with all this death of sin, all this poison of our complaining and our murmuring, all the lack of faith, all the constant tripping up over ourselves. Isn't that the truth? The most of the tripping up we do is actually not anything other than ourselves. It's our own lack of faith. It's our own lack of sight, our own lack of ability to believe God is good and is working for us. That we tend to lean into the death and the despair as opposed to into the promises and what God has given us in hope. See, the hope we were shown last week is that there is life for a look at the Savior. That there's life when the snakes are biting you. When all of the poison of sin seems to just be infesting everything in your life, there is one who has taken that poison of sin for us. Who's overcome, who's secured our place in right standing with God. And so the people at the beginning of chapter 21 dishonored God. They faced God's judgment and discipline. And they found salvation through God's mediation. God stepped in and saved his people. What glorious grace that God has shown so you would expect then no more complaining and murmuring, right? But we've learned the Israelites are not great at anything except for complaining and murmuring and groaning. You see, in one chapter, they murmur and there's a plague. In another chapter, they complain and the earth literally swallows people whole. And if that doesn't get their attention, which it didn't, snakes. Finally, snakes. All the murmuring and all the complaining, verse, verses 1 through 9, I just want to give you this really good news. They got it. They finally got it. It's the last instance in the book of Numbers. Now, I mean, admittedly, we took two-thirds of the way through. But it's the last instance in the book of Numbers of nationwide grumbling and murmuring and complaining. 
It's the last instance of all the people coming up against God and his purposes and against Moses and Aaron. They're finally done complaining. But now what? If you're not going to complain, what else is there? Right? How do we define the Israelites if it's not by complaining? That seems to be the defining element of their existence to this point. God said, you're going to be holy. You're going to be my people. You'll carry my name. They say, we're going to complain. So if you're not going to complain, what is it going to look like? What is it going to look like for them to walk through the every day? Yes, snakes come, look at the Savior. We get it. But what happens when the snakes aren't there? What happens when it's just walking through the wilderness? What happens when it's just the normal valley of the shadow of death, not the poisonous snakes valley of the shadow of death? Because that's where we are most days, isn't it? Most days we're not being attacked on all sides by poisonous snakes. Agreed? Most days, it's just the tripping up, the hazards, the evil, the reality of the darkness around us. How do we walk in that every day? And I believe today we see in this passage a few truths, two in particular, that I think are important for us. One has to do with God's sovereignty, that God is in control, that he is king. We see that in his defeating of several kings Right. But we also see it in his guidance of his people. And then on the flip side, we have the people's responsibility. If you're going to be a follower of God, what is your responsible? What is your responsibility in light of God's sovereignty? What is our responsibility? What does it look like for us to walk in obedience by faith through the everyday, through the doldrums, through the valley of the shadow of death, through the wilderness on the way to glory? Well, the first thing I want you to see is that God is faithful to move his people forward, not leave them in the wilderness. Admittedly, if you read this passage and you get through all the names and the place names and all of that, you may, as Kenny did a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about it, he was afraid he was going to have to preach this passage instead of the one he got. See, in Leviticus, I gave him all the hard passages. I threw him a softball last week with like snakes and a cross. I was like, you got that one. You got it. But he called me and he's like, hey, Brad. I'm reading this passage. I have no idea how to preach this. Like, it literally is just like, and the people camped here and followed God there, and then they killed some people. <laughs> is that what the Christian life is? <laughs> it's like camping and killing people? Is that what we're supposed to be doing? And, uh, you know, but the, the reality is that's not what the Christian life is, camping and killing people. Just to, be, to clarify, I, I actually said that in first service, and I had to catch myself. I want you to understand this. It's not camping and killing people. It's following God and fighting the right battles. So we want to see God's sovereignty, but we also want to see our responsibility. And under God's sovereignty, we see finally God moving his people forward. God is faithful to move his people forward, not leave them in the wilderness. Just look at the evidences of forward momentum. Finally, the passage is full of it. Look at the beginning of the passage. Look in verses 10 through 13. From there... They went out and they camped. And then from there, they went out and they camped. And from there, they went out and they camped. They're moving. In fact, we even have geographical markers. We have place names, not just so that we know where they went. I mean, we want documentation of how God moved them. But for this reason, they were going somewhere. And each of those places along the way was not where they were going. But let me, let me say that in a different way. God has put us on a path to the promised land. Every place along the way is not where we're supposed to be staying. And so they 
camped there and then they moved on and then they camped there and then they moved on. How much of our life is actually spent not just camping but building homes in places where we're not supposed to be staying? How much of our life on the way to the promised land is actually embracing the world we're passing through as opposed to looking forward to the promised land, camping and moving on, camping and moving on? You see, we have a citizenship that's in heaven. But so much of our life is spent embracing the things that are passing away, embracing the things and the the belonging here, finding contentment and finding things here. But they were moving. Even in verses 16 through 20, you see it again. And they continued. They're, They're even moving in a direction like towards the sunset, it says. All of those markers are meant to show us this constant movement that God is finally moving his people along the path and he's doing it because he's he's determined not to leave them in the wilderness this generation this next generation was going to get into the promised land here we see that god was not leaving his people to suffer in the wilderness but that every step in the wilderness was leading his people home every step in the wilderness was leading his people home they'd already made the loop-de-loop right they got to the promised land, said, nope, too big, too powerful, can't fight those people. And God had already taken them back to the beginning of the journey. So they've made the loop-de-loop. But every bit of the loop-de-loop was God leading his people. So that this next generation would not be left in the wilderness. How often do you feel in your own life as if you're off track? Anybody ever feel like you're just off the rails? Off track. That this is the path that I'm not on it. You know, I thought I was on the path. I thought I was following. And it it seems like God's still with me. It's just not the path that I expected. I seem to be going in circles. Anybody ever feel like you're just going in circles? Guess what? The people of Israel going in circles. Literally going in circles in the middle of the wilderness. And yet God was leading them. See, even the path of difficulty is the path that God is leading you through and leading you on. This is what God had promised to them. Now they're south of the Dead Sea in Oboth. They're going all the way to the land of Moab on the edge of the promised land. It's in this passage that we can clearly see God in his faithfulness and in his sovereignty keeping his promise to lead his people. Exodus chapter 6 says it this way. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, I'm going to bring you out from under the Egyptians. He goes on in verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So God is leading his people, guiding his people by his sovereign hand to where he wants them to be. But he's not just leading them to where he wants them to be. He's leading them through where he wants them to be on the path to glory god is still leading every step of the way that's what it looks like for god to be sovereign for his people and over his people he goes on in chapter 33 of exodus he said my presence will go with you and i will give you rest 
This is God keeping his promises to his people. God's presence, his power, his glory was leading the people. See, God's responsibility is to lead the people. Their responsibility was to follow by faith. God's responsibility is to lead you. Your responsibility, my responsibility is to follow by faith. But how much angst and anxiety and worry is spent in our lives about, well, I've got to know the right direction. I've got to know the right direction. What's the next step? Where do I go? Right or left? What do I do? I don't know. And how often do we actually just step out and do and say it's in faith? Really, it's just in that looks easier. <laughs> How often do we take the path of least resistance? How often do we go a path hoping, hoping, hoping that it's the right way as opposed to going to the Lord in prayer, seeking his face, following his will, following, looking to his word, looking to the wisdom of the people around us that God has placed in our lives that trust him? How much of our lives is spent trying to make a path as opposed to following in his footsteps? God is faithful to lead. Our job is to follow and when god's people follow him by faith believing that he is sovereign that god leads his people to all of the promises to the promise of rest the promise that he'll be with them the promise of the promised land the second thing i want you to see is that god is faithful in his sovereignty to provide for and fight for his people for the purpose of keeping his promises that last phrase don't lose that one don't lose that one We like the idea of God providing for us and fighting for us. Amen? It's great, but I want to make sure you understand this. He fights for us and provides for us according to his promises, to keep his promises so that his purposes are accomplished. He doesn't fight for us and provide for us so we get what we want. He fights for us and provides for us so that he gets what he wants. And what he wants is what's good for us. See, God provides, first of all, water at a well. That's good news because every other time there's not been any water, we've had problems in the book of Numbers, haven't we? I mean, literally the last time water was an issue, Moses and Aaron were kicked out of the promised land. That was the last time we had a water issue is Moses, Aaron, you don't get in. So water has been a, quite a sticking point for the people of God in the wilderness, a source of complaining and murmuring against God and Moses and Aaron. Yet still, God says here, gather the people. Gather the people so he can give them water. What grace. What magnificent grace in such a simple thing. Don't, don't miss the grace of God in the simple things in your life on the path. See, we when we look to heaven and we look forward to the promised land, we can often miss the evidences of God's grace that are supposed to sustain us on the way to the promised land. You ever been there? Where you only look forward or backwards and never actually see God's provision right now? Where it's so easy to miss how God's doing simple things, gracious things, good things for you right now. God provides. God provides for his people. Even after all their murmuring, even after all of their complaining, God provides for his people. And then he goes on. He goes on to not just gather his people and give them water. God also delivers them over their enemies. The, the rest of the passage is like battle lines drawn. The people of these cities and these nations are coming out against God's people. 
God delivers over Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who had taken the land from the Moabites. And the Israelites defeated him and his armies and took his land. And then even after that, that wasn't enough because Sihon was pretty powerful. But beyond that, then you get this other guy. I don't know what people were thinking about when they named their kids back then, but Og, right? I mean, I'd be angry too. I'd be one to fight everybody. Verse 33, it says, Then they turned and went by the way, went up by the way to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them. And look at what it says. He didn't just come out. He brought everybody. He and all his people. So now you had all the people of Israel and all the people of Bashan in a standoff. And so they're there at the Battle of Edrei. But the Lord said to Moses, do not fear him. For you guys are going to be so strong and awesome with your strategery, as a former president used to call it, that I have given you. And you're going to draw battle lines and you're, you've got better weapons. What does this say? What does he say? I have given him into your hand and all his people. And his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left and they possessed his land. They literally made sure there was no king after him. And who did that? Yeah, they fought the battle, but who did that? God said, I will deliver him into your hand. God in his sovereignty fought for his people. Provided for his people in order to keep his promises. He made a promise that they would be his people, that they would be a nation unto him, that he would drive out the enemies before them, that he would fight for them. Exodus 14, 14 says, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. And in Deuteronomy 3, where we actually read about this defeat of King Og, Deuteronomy 3, you shall not fear them for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. God promises things and keeps them. That's what it means for God to be sovereign. God promises and God fulfills. And God's promise and God's fulfillment is to fight for his people as he accomplishes his purpose. So it's here under the banner of God's sovereignty that God's people find the ability to stand firm and fight. It's not we're strong, it's that God is sovereign. Is everybody with me? God's sovereignty means God fights for his people, which then leads his people to trust him. They, they get to find victory. They get to find triumph. They find their purpose. But what's the purpose of all of this? That if God is sovereign, they have a responsibility to do. That's their purpose. Our purpose is God's people is found underneath God's sovereignty, not outside of it. It's not separate from God's sovereignty. It's not God is king and ruler of all, except for these little things that I get to decide in my life. It's God is sovereign and ruler of all, and I live under that banner and under that umbrella, and I live out my responsibility to him as the sovereign. This is where it gets into the sticky point. Here's where people get this misnomer or this argument in their head, and they're like, if God is sovereign then what's the point? I don't, don't really have a responsibility to it. If, if God's will is going to be accomplished, why don't I just sit back, relax, 
I don't have a responsibility here. If God is sovereign, why pray? If God is sovereign, why share the gospel with people? If God is sovereign, why stand for truth? If God is sovereign, why am I preaching? If God is sovereign, why go to church? He's going to accomplish his will anyway. He doesn't need me. You're right. He doesn't need you. But here's the simple reality. I'll give you the simple answer. and I'll give you the theological answer. Okay. Simple answer of why you actually obey is because he's sovereign. Which means he's sovereign over you too. This is what sovereignty means. If he's the king and you're a subject in his kingdom, your responsibility at that point is, yes, King Jesus. That's what it means for him to be sovereign. To say no to a sovereign means you don't believe he's sovereign. Is everybody with me? So what's our responsibility? Our responsibility is to trust in the sovereign one. But why would we do that? Because he's sovereign? No, because we know he's good. Let me say that again. We don't trust God because he's sovereign. We trust God because he's good. This is the way Jerry Bridges works this out, and I think it's really important. God is completely sovereign. God is infinite in wisdom. God is perfect in love. So God in his love always wills what is best for us. Is everybody walking with that? Because God loves and he's perfect in his love, then everything that he desires for us, everything that he's going to work out, everything that he promises for us is good because he is completely loving. He is perfect in his love. So it's always best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what's best. So not only is he saying, I want what's best, but because he's all wise, he knows what's best. So it's not going to be a mistake. And in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. He can actually do it. So knowing we have a sovereign on the throne, knowing we have a sovereign God, what's our responsibility? Our responsibility is to trust that he's good in his sovereignty. They're where he's leading us, even in the loop-de-loops. What he's doing for us, the battles he's calling us to fight, he's good. And we can trust him. God is constantly working all things out for our good. There's a song on the radio right now on Christian radio. I don't listen to a lot of Christian radio. Um, you know, there's a little phrase in here. We'll get to it in a minute. But I, it totally bombed in first service. So I'm going to try it again in second service. So a little while we're here. It's a, it's a little phrase in here but um, about Christian music. Back in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of lame Christian music. There actually is some decent Christian music. I just haven't gotten over the 70s and 80s yet. So I don't listen to a whole lot of lame Christian music. Um, I mean, or Christian, well, I said that. Okay. Um, I'm also, so anyway. Uh, but there is a song. Torrin Wells has a song out right now. And I don't know the name of the song. It, I just caught it as I was trying to change the radio station uh, the other day. And in the in the bridge of the song, he says something like this. Like I said, I did, it just caught me. And I was like, oh. And I don't know exactly what the words are, but it was something like this. If it's not good, then he's not done. Ooh. And I went, truth in a Christian song on radio? I had no idea. Right? If, if it's not good, then he's not done. Don't you believe that? Then why don't we live like that? Why don't we trust like that? Because we love 
God's sovereignty in verses like Romans 8.28 that we read earlier. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, right? We love that, amen? Like I get out of bed because of that verse in the morning. I love to sing songs like that about the Ancient of Days. But when it means that I don't get to be the decider, I don't know if I like God's sovereignty all that much. See, we like God to be sovereign when there's an enemy king on the horizon. We like God to be sovereign when the snakes are biting. God being sovereign, the everyday wandering through the wilderness, not sure we want that all the time. But our responsibility is to trust that he's good in his sovereignty. But did you catch it in Romans 8, 28? All those who are called according to his purpose. You see it there? See, in God's sovereignty, in his love, in his purpose, he's working good for his people, making us more than conquerors. But he's doing it in a way that we tend to struggle with. See, there's people in the world, even under the banner of what the world calls Christianity, I would call them false teachers most of the time. But they would say here that the victory God is promising is really just your heart's desires. Your contentment. Is everybody with me? It's the idea that if you want it, you name it, you claim it, and God's job is to make sure your hearts are content, that you get what your heart desires. If, if you want that job and you didn't get that job, it's because you didn't have enough faith to pray right for that job because God exists as a means to your end, and the end is you being happy. That's what is being sold around the world. It's not Christianity. God is a genie or a vending machine. That's all that is. Pump your money in, pump your prayers in, get what you want. That's not the way God operates. But that's what so many people will talk about when they talk about victory, about living this victorious Christian life, that you name it, you claim it, you desire it, you speak it into existence, that that's what the essence of faith is, that Believing God for blessing to make your heart content. But we know this. We know this truth that outside of Jesus Christ, outside of the perfect plan of God found in Jesus Christ, nobody's heart is ever going to be content. Nobody's heart is ever going to find contentment outside of God's will, outside of God's promises, outside of God's presence. The heart will never find contentment. There is no victory apart from God's perfect plan. Victory in the life of God's people, good in the life of God's people, God working good through evil in, God, in, in the lives of God's people is not for our personal gain. It's for his kingdom purposes. It's according to his purpose. So I said it at the beginning of this. I said God is faithful to provide for and fight for his people for the purpose of keeping his promises, not for the purposes of you being happy right now but if he's keeping his promises aren't you going to be happy if you're following by faith eventually you're going to get all the joy not a substitute all the love all the peace all the goodness not a cheap knockoff aw tozer once said the sovereign god wants to be loved for himself and honored for himself. He wants us to worship him because he is God, because he is sovereign, because he is good. But that's only part of what he wants. The other part is that he wants us to know that when we have him, we have everything. 
all the best, all the rest, all the blessing, every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, all the inheritance, all the victory. See, some people will treat God as if he's a means to an end, but the fact of the matter is he is the victory, he is the reward, he is the end. And the goal in the victories, the goal in the fighting, the goal in the battles is his glory and his goodness and his kingdom. And we get to reap the benefits of that. But see, most people will look at God as a way to receive victory in the battle, but he's actually the reward, not the victory. So if they had beat Sion there and they had gone and beaten Og and God had said, hey, I'll just stay here in this land where I defeated these guys and they went on without him, they would not experience the reward, would they? But the promise is God. See, God is so sovereign that he doesn't just guarantee victory over our enemies. He guarantees victory over our own heart's desires. God is so sovereign <laughs> that he doesn't just say, I'm going to give you victory over your enemies. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to be victorious over your own heart. So you're going to desire the right things. You're going to follow in the right way. See, every time God brings us through a trial and gives us victory, it's not so we can rest in victory. It's so that we can follow by faith. Every time God gets you through one trial, it's supposed to get you ready for the next trial to trust him more. That's what it means for God to be sovereign. And our responsibility is to trust him. So it's this truth of God's gracious sovereignty over his people, this God's love and his sovereignty for his people in his people, making us who he wants us to be, that actually gives us our purpose and our responsibility. So these two things don't fight with one another, that God is sovereign and we are supposed to have responsibility. These two things work together because our responsibility is to trust that he is good as our sovereign king. That's what it looks like. So what do we do in response to God's good sovereignty? Because of God's sovereignty, God's people follow him by faith. That's the simple answer. God's people follow him by faith. Every step of the way, every step of the way, God was sovereignly leading his people. And because of his sovereignty, God's people follow him by faith. All the way through the wilderness, through death, all the way to where he would make his dwelling place with them. And finally, here, after all the grumbling, after all the complaining, here the people of God move with him. They follow him. They actually trust him. They fight under his authority. They rest under his authority. They camp under his authority. God's job is to lead and to guide. God's people's job is to follow by faith. That's what we're called to do. And what it means to follow by faith is that most of life is spent in the wilderness. That's what it means. Most of life is through the valley of the shadow of death. Trusting that he's going to lead us beside still waters. Trusting that he's going to restore our soul. Why would you need your soul restored if you never went through the valley of the shadow of death? Why would you need your cup filled if it was never emptied? Why would you ever need to feast if you weren't hungry? 
See, our, our God takes us not through the tiptoeing through the tulips or walking through green pastures all the time. He takes us through the wilderness. And he is with us. And we follow him. See, because of God's sovereignty, God's people do not need to fear their enemies. Because of God's sovereignty, God's people do not fear enemies. See, as the people progressed on God's pathway to the promised land, they came up against enemies. But I want to make sure you understand this. There were tons of enemies out there. Plenty of people they could have fought. But they only fought a few of them along the way. Did you catch that? Plenty of enemies. There, there were borders and boundaries here everywhere. And if they just spent all their time going, well, we fight them and we fight them. God's with us. Let's fight. Then they're not actually moving to where God wants them to be. We can spend a whole lot of time as people who call ourselves followers of God not following. But just finding fights. Trusting that God's going to give us the victory. Well, I hate to tell you, God's not going to give you a victory in a fight. He doesn't want you to fight. God's not going to give you provision in a place that he never wanted you to be. But how much of our lives are spent, instead of fighting the battles God is calling us to, we're searching out battles to fight so that we feel fulfilled. No, they, they fought against enemies, but these aren't just enemies of their mind. These aren't just enemies who they think, oh, this person's standing in the way of my contentment and my happiness. These are people who stood against God. Sihon and Og, I want you to think for just a second because this is often overlooked. When the people get to Jericho, which we will read about later, okay? When they get to Jericho, they hear this. Oh, we've heard. <laughs> we've heard about this God. The one who ransacked the Egyptians, we know about this God. Do you think Sihon and Og didn't know about this God? That when they brought all their people out and they saw a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud in front of them, that they went, interesting. No, it was, it was obvious. God is with these people. There is a God with these people. And this is the God who destroyed the Egyptians. And yet, I mean, it takes guts. Don't give me your stupid guts, but it takes guts. They brought all their people out to fight against this God. They came out and stood, battle lines drawn against God. None of these enemies doubted that Israel had a God leading them. They heard what he had done. They could see his power. But their pride caused them to come and fight. I want you to understand this. They could have done this nation by nation by nation by nation by nation. Through the wilderness. They could have been fighting the whole time, but that wasn't God's design. Stop fighting battles. God hasn't called you to fight. Christian, there are battles against God's enemies, not yours, that you need to be fighting. And God's enemy is not flesh and blood. Powers and principalities. You want to fight for the gospel? Start sharing the gospel. You want to fight for the cause of the kingdom start sharing the gospel with your friend don't don't stand for truth without sharing the truth it's really easy for us to fight a lot of battles and never actually get to the war that's being waged god has called us to something greater he's called us for his kingdom purposes not so that we get to where we want to be but so that he is given glory and accomplishes his purposes through us but before we are too 
rough on Sihon and Og for coming out in their pride. Realize that the people had been living under the shadow of this fire and this cloud for years now. And all it took was no water and they would fight against God. They'd come and draw their battle lines. You and I, we've been living under the provision of God our whole lives, haven't we not? And how easy is it for us to draw our battle lines against God and say, hey, you're not giving me what I want right now. To look at God as the one who's even standing in the way of our contentment and what we want. No, we must take a step back here and understand not only is God the one who fights for us, God determines what battles we should be fighting. And if we would trust and follow, he would lead us into the right battles. And those, those battles that we're fighting that are the right battles, we, there's no need to fear those enemies because he has delivered them into our hands. No weapon formed against us could ever stand. Because of God's sovereignty, God's people sing songs of rejoicing. Did you catch that? There's a song there. God provides and he fights, but I love the song around the provision of God. At the well. These are the people who went from murmuring and complaining about water to singing about water. Right? They, they sing songs. And every time God provides, we should sing and rejoice. Every time God fights for us, we should sing and rejoice. Just look at verses 16 and 17. From there they continue to bear. That is the well of which the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together so that I may, I may give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, gush, 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 gush. Sing. <laughs> yes! Okay, good. First service, nobody. Uh, and those of you who those of you who don't know, ask somebody. Okay, all right, good. Okay, spring up a well, sing to it the well that the princes made, that the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staffs. See, when God provides by His sovereign hand, God's people should rejoice. Yeah, can we all agree to that? That when God provides by His sovereign hand, we should rejoice and worship by faith. And the same thing is true when God gives victory. We sing songs of victory. God's people live under God's sovereign hand as worshipers. And those who understand this will worship. So everything we possess, every good thing is a gift from God. Which means that everything you have should be a source of praise to God. Everything. Even the trials. Because he said those things will end up for your good. They should be a source of a praise. When we understand that we have a sovereign shepherd, a sovereign God who leads us beside still waters, restores our soul, gives us everything we need, provides us safety and security, prepares a table in the presence of our enemies, who anoints our head with oil, who fills our cup to overflowing, that that God, that sovereign God, that good shepherd is the same one who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> makes us a little more willing to not fear our enemies, to not fear the shadow of death. He leads us to goodness. He leads us through danger, leads us in peace in the presence of our enemies. He blesses us, sustains us, keeps us. It's like David saying in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. And we like it at that point, don't we? We're all like, stop the psalm right there. 
skip the next part. But even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For your rod, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Don't miss this, though. Because the people of Israel seem to have finally turned the corner, haven't they? They're actually following him into battle against major enemies. They're trusting. They're beginning to trust that he will fight for them. They're beginning to trust that he's going to provide for them. What happened? What happened is in verse 7 that Kenny talked about last week. The people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. That's a first. We have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he can take, may take away the serpents from us. All the people were getting bitten, so they said, take them away. You know what God didn't do, according to the passage? It doesn't say that he did it. It doesn't say he took the snakes away. He just gave them a cure. He didn't take the evil away. He didn't take the pain away. He didn't take away all of the hardship. He didn't take away all of the attack. He didn't take away the valley of the shadow of death. He simply gave them a savior. Folks, this is what I need you to hear. If you're a follower of Christ, and you're walking through the wilderness that seems like the valley of the shadow of death, and you're like, when does this end? It ends <laughs> when you see him face to face. And you're like, Brad, I needed good news today. Hey, it's good news. It ends. Because you don't deserve that. Neither do I. We don't deserve to even walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We deserve to be the dead ones in the valley of the shadow of death. What good news it is that his rod and his staff comfort us. Protecting us through the valley of the shadow of death. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ. And you say, look, all of my life feels like one failure, one battle lost after another. Could it be you're fighting the wrong battles? Could it be you're fighting for contentment in a world that's designed to keep you discontent? Could it be that you're fighting for joy in a world that's meant to kill your joy? Could it be that you don't have the power and the authority and the ability to accomplish any of the things that you want that you think would make your life worthwhile? Could it be that there's only one who could do that? Only one who could give you purpose? Only one who could give you salvation? Only one who could set you free? Only one who can make you content? Only one who can give you hope and joy? Only one who could set you on a path that actually leads you to a promise that is secure? Because it's true. There is a sovereign God who loves you. Loves you enough that he sent his only son to die in your place. On a cross full of anguish and pain and suffering. Because you and I sinned against him. Because you and I didn't recognize him as a good sovereign king. And instead we, want to be the, instead we said we wanted to be the kings and queens of our own destiny. And instead of punishing us and leaving us in the valley of the shadow of death. He put his son on a cross in our place. 
And what do we do in return? We look for victory wherever we can find it, contentment wherever we can find it. Here's the good news. On the third day after Jesus died on the cross, he rose again victoriously. And so if you're looking for victory today, he says, look at the resurrection. Look at the empty tomb. Because there's where the victory is found. Would you trust him today? Trust him enough that if he can take you through this trial, he can take you through the next one. Trust him enough that he will fight the battles that need to be fought. Trust him enough that he will provide every step of the way. And trust him enough that he's doing it to get us to where he wants us to be. But he's good enough and sovereign enough that he has you right where he wants you. You ever thought about that? You know how I know some of you in this room need to hear the good news of the gospel today and that this is God's design? You know how I know? Because you're here. And my God is sovereign enough to get you here so you could hear it. He's worth trusting. Would you trust him today? Father, we pray that we would walk in victory, not our own, but because of Jesus and what he's done for us. Help us to trust, walk by faith of you, our good Sovereign God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. If you want to know more about what it is to follow Christ, grab the person next to you and say, Hey, will you tell me more about this Jesus? Come talk to Kenny.